to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that takes it nice and slow on those dark country roads. I grew up in uh, rural Wisconsin and can attest to this. Just take your time. No rush. You don't have to drive like you're 17. <laughs> like you're 17. I like that. It's think, so, so accurate. <laughs> isn't that the demographic that drives with the least fear? You know, the kind of yeah. fresh off your license. I think you get that one good year of fear once you get the driver's license. But then after mm. that, you kind of start to cut loose. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, no rural roads. Uh, you know, take it. just take it cautiously, especially if it's winter time. Could be ice. Why risk it? Yeah, exa- and, and you're out in the middle of nowhere. And right. It's nighttime. The the headlights. What if a car comes at you? Like, yeah, just be careful, guys. Or maybe it doesn't come at you. Who knows? Depends on how yeah. ambiguous the car, <laughs> the car, the other car is. <laughs> uh, if you have no idea why we're discussing driving on dark country roads, it is because you have stumbled upon a book club episode, which is an analytical deep dive episode on the Philip Roth novel, The Human Stain. This is our part two of that book club. So if you've ended up in the wrong podcast place, that's fine. You can hit pause on this one and come back when you finish The Human Stain or you just want us to spoil it for you, which we'll be doing today. As I mentioned, we are the Lightly Literary Podcast. We have an Instagram and Facebook account under that same name, so it's just at the Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word. Follow us on those accounts to catch up with us and see what we're posting. I think today, Amanda, I'm going to start reposting some art, so I'm way behind at this Yay! point. But, you know, at some point it'll come back. We, we tend to post updates and <laughs> include what we're doing and, yeah, just updates about the books we're doing. So if you're curious about what we'll be reading either you know listen in because we always talk about it here but otherwise follow those accounts as i mentioned a book club episode is a spoiler filled episode these are our analytical deep dive episodes so if you do not want the contents of this novel spoiled for you then definitely hit pause soon as we'll be diving into the second half of it any content warnings uh, there are some references to racism in the back half of this book so that still continues to come up I don't think we'll be Um, quoting any of it, or at least I don't have any plans to, but it's there. And then the references to the car accident, or I guess you could just say death, but there's nothing graphic. Yeah, the the most graphic aspect of that, I guess, is just like the gossip about what caused Mm -hmm. the, the accident. There's some sexual references, but nothing that would slide into our content warning zone, because it's like yeah. consensual stuff. It's like romantic, whatever, whatever. Yeah. Um, okay. And I, yeah, I didn't think of any others, unless I missed something. I can't think of anything. Gotcha. Well, let's dive in then, with all that preamble out of the way. Any any broad thoughts before we start? Uh, Nope. I'm good. Nothing I'm to, ready. Nothing to say. It'll all come out in the podcast, as they say. All shall be revealed. <laughs> <laughs> um, the back half of this book, the way we decided to split it, uh, only has two parts, like two stopping points for us. So we're going to have to kind of go slow and take our time on these because they are long and dense. I, they're called chapters, technically speaking, but they they feel more like sections or parts. They're pretty long and include a lot of stuff. <laughs> so we'll we'll go through and summarize and do our analysis as we go. So the the fourth part of this book is called What Maniac Conceived It, and it opens with our narrator, 
Well, actually, it, do, would you? Oh, uh, we'll get to this at the end. I'm already tripping over myself because I just hated this <laughs> twist so much. <laughs> but um, anyway, we'll just call him his neighbor. So Colin's neighbor, who is an author, uh, he sees him and Fawny out at a concert to open this section, and they seem, you know, sort of like a normal couple enjoying a a public event. So you know, they're doing more things in the public eye at this point. I, the quote I pulled is he calls them a pair of blanks, and he sort of analyzes their position as two people who are just I guess so free of the burdens of society in a way to people who are kind of blank slates treating each other as blank slates and enjoying that freedom and you know he comments on the relationship and they, they seem like generally happy but not talkative and yeah so he just kind of checks in on them and sees them out in public the narrative then hard cuts to Les who is getting out of a VA hospital Les is funny as ex-husband who is, you know, has these violent tendencies and is suffering from PTSD. He then goes to see a support group, sort of for veterans, uh, Vietnam veterans specifically. They train him to reacclimate to the world by taking him to a Chinese food restaurant. And this is supposed to help tamp down his hatred for Asian Americans and sort of just all Asian peoples. His time in Vietnam has turned his hatred into kind of a blank slate. Uh, he later then takes, they later, this is jumping ahead, but they later take him on a trip to the touring Vietnam War Memorial where they take parts of the wall and recreate it in various towns. And that also kind of goes well or seems to until it really doesn't at the end. Uh, yeah, any thoughts briefly on those two kind of reacclimation things for less? They were long sections. They really were. And, um... Uh, I, I thought it was interesting because I think um, in the previous episode we had talked about how Les is just kind of like dropped in there as, but we don't know that much about him so we get right. a lot more about him here and, and the uh, his reacclimation into society I, I, I found that a really fascinating part of the novel actually mm-hmm. it uh, is well, yeah and I think, uh, unfortunately, the shadow of the now-we-know-author-narrator is going to be cast over the whole thing. But, right. I mean, in the first part of the story, I thought it was a bold narrative kind of stylistic choice to show this tra- traumatized person who is having these extreme violent thoughts and these kind of abusive tendencies and everything. But now we know that it was just this lame author neighbor trying to imitate what he thinks was going on. Right? Like, the, it, right. this is the problem when you do this, authors. When you do this weird meta thing, it makes all your bold narrative choices just seem kind of limp and be like, okay, well, now I know it's just the fantasy of this neighbor guy. Like, it, yeah. the thing I hate about a move like that, a narrative kind of meta move, is that now it turns all the attention to this author neighbor and it's like, who cares about him? Just narrate the story in an interesting way. I don't need to, <laughs> not everything has to be a commentary of a commentary of a commentary. But of course, now it's like, I can't even read the the narrative how I wanted because now I have to put everything through the, through the prism of this neighbor dude so yeah. I, I don't know <laughs> yeah what an interesting frame for this novel where at the beginning it's implied that uh, Coleman Silk of course wanted him to write the the biography of his life essentially right right um, and then he says no but in the end he actually in the end it's the book you're reading. Exactly, is, and, and what a weird yeah. frame, right? That's such I a just, strange 
I, way it, to put the story through. I think it's bold. I just think the the part that I hated, and maybe this is we've got podcast brain because we recorded a whole episode without knowing this, <laughs> uh, without mm-hmm. analyzing it in that way. But like, yeah. just make it clear up front then. Like, don't do this. It was in the final fourth of the book that it's revealed. It's like a bit, it almost did feel twisty to me where it's like, ah, surprise, all of these moments, all these narrative insights, all of these, like, these long digressions that Fawnia has, who ends up becoming one of the more interesting characters. Well, that's all made up. It's like that now that's inauthentic. Now I have to assume that's what a old aging white writer recluse guy thinks a woman would think. Like now I have to, right. now everything is refracted and that just annoys me. I mean, it's interesting though. <laughs> it's like, I wish I would have known the whole novel was this one person's extremely limited and tilted view of this this world of Coleman and Fawny and everyone else but it, but of course it's too it's like by the time I get to the end I'm like oh well now I have to rethink everything in this book now <laughs> which just feels kind of silly to do at the end um I, I don't know it's exhausting encourage- it, it is and it, it encourages a a second look at the entire novel like like you have to reread the novel with this new yeah. frame of reference in order to like <laughs> to really understand I suppose some because of the things and, the, the other yeah. reason this annoyed me so so radically annoyed me is because we know for a fact that this author neighbor who I think is named Zuckerman right yeah Zuckerman um, we know that this author neighbor Zuckerman like he hasn't shown any journalistic work so, for example, now we have to assume that the Fania chapters, like when she sees the crow in this section, I know we're digressing hard at this point, but this was, it was going to come up eventually because it's just such a bold move for the book to do this, to be like, oh, by the way, everything you read was not true, quote unquote, or was not an insight into a person's life. It was an imagining of a person who became obsessed with Coleman. Like that changes mm-hmm. the whole thing. Um, but anyway, but so like now the Fania sections, for example, with the crow, which would otherwise be, I think, a pretty fascinating little kind of aside for Fania. Well, now it's just what this author dude wants to think is interesting, which, you know, right. if that's a meta commentary on Roth himself, if this is Roth analyzing Roth or, or whatever. I don't know. I'm just sick of postmodern moves like that. I just think that's, I don't know. I just think that it's, it adds unnecessary layers, like two or three layers of analytical thinking is, is hard enough. Like why add this other filter? It just becomes exhausting right. at some point. It's kind of stupid. <laughs> um, in my, in my view anyway, I don't, especially with a novel that was already already so difficult to pin down and was like complex enough on its own it's like really this is the other thing we needed really like okay now i have to filter every single thought through this person knowing also again did he ever show him doing journalism like for example the other character i thought really failed in the second half was the french uh intelligent professor woman who like has it out for coleman kind of what's her name delphine yeah delphine so all that stuff though did did he ever research her did he ever interview her did he ever because if if he wrote all that stuff about her right those those moments of her like desperate trying to date all all that stuff i mean like what's what's his research to infer all of that like, yeah, how is he... I, I I had the same questions because I was just like, I can't, like, is it just like a personal vendetta because she's somebody who like targeted Coleman Silk in right. his eyes or is it like stuff, it, he implies that it all came out, but then 
like the truth about Delphine came out, but there we don't ever see yeah how any resolution with that. And so yeah yeah, and it's and it's if we're going to assume, for example, that the evidence that the that Zuckerman has is oh she sent this email that I got a hold of because the staff sent it to me like oh clearly she must have accidentally sent this this romantic or woman seeking man email, and so he uses that to write those like her sections also felt like they were probably a bit too long in the back half. I feel like Roth was. <laughs> feeling himself too much there um but so we're so we're meant to now assume that zuckerman creates that narrative creates that story just based on those emails probably like i don't i don't know it, it just felt like such an unnecessary final move it really did i i i, I it's funny though because i it's almost like i don't even want to do the rest of this book analysis because all my thoughts happened before i knew that's what the story was going to do and now that I know that the story has done that, now I'm like, well, all my insights don't really work. They're, or they're not interesting anymore. They're not the same. You know, like, it just felt it felt like I was a deflated balloon when I read this. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, really? Like, we're, this whole thing has been a book that Zuckerman made up? I can't, I can't infer anything about the narrative voice and choices except through a refracted lens of this, dis, you know, isolated author, guy, obsessive, whatever. I don't know. Let's let's continue on with the summary, but I, I felt like we had to address that sooner than later because it just, I, I at, at the end of every single, I feel like every single insight I'm going to have into this book now, I'm just going to have to say, except I guess that Zuckerman wrote it, which means I don't know. Add another level of analysis to it, I guess. I don't. Who knows? <laughs> like, you know, every every interesting moment, every narrative voice, every every creative sentence where I was like, ah, what a what a great way to phrase that. Now I'm like, well, it's just some sad, lonely author guy trying to assume things about people now. Which again, if that's some kind of meta commentary about Roth himself, if this is just how he you know portrays his frustration as a as an author and artist about this remove he has from the world yada yada i don't know i'm just not interested in those kind of meta critiques at this point i don't know why i'm just tired of them anyway let's move on with the plot summary so we've got this vietnam war trip that goes really horribly we'll get back to that in a minute from there fawny and coleman share a lust and reflection filled scene together late at night after some after some love making they muse about what their relationship means what it doesn't mean coleman keeps telling her to dance which i don't know was that cute was it meant to be cute <laughs> it's meant to be um i guess his reenactment of of the scenes with um what was the name of um the first the first one that he called voluptus oh. was there another woman oh the the one he was dating in new york when he was younger yeah I forget. Yeah, yeah the, the woman he brought home with the race didn't have a race issue, but that he didn't tell her about his family. And so he kind of the one from Minnesota. Yes. Oh, I don't yes. remember. Um, she anyway. So remember, she used to dance for him and it was um, innocent, but also mm. seductive. But right. he, you know, funny is is just seductive um, and purposeful. So it's like right. meant. I I think it's meant to be kind of symbolic of like Coleman taking like the next step with Fania, where it's not just a sexual relationship. Now it's it's something more. So here's my here's where we have to do this now. 
So now we know that Zuckerman made up that scene and has, mm-hmm. and has imagined them doing this. So how do you analyze yep. it now? Because again, at first I'm like, oh, this is an interesting way to co- make Fawny a complex. It's what an interesting character Roth is creating. Like she's really got depth to her. But of course, all of that now I have to throw in the trash and be like, oh, this is a uh, strange author's assumption about their relationship. This is his leering interpretation of how they would spend their kind of intimate time. And it just, I don't know, I just find that exhausting now to think about, to be like, oh, he, remember in the beginning of the novel when he danced with Coleman briefly? They like had an intimate little, so now I'm like, oh, so this is the author taking a moment like that, asking himself, well, I've never seen them in private, but what can I assume now that they're both dead? Oh, we danced that one time. Let me write a scene about these dead people, about how they must have danced and he kept pressing her to dance for him like that's how this book has to be read now it's not i can't i can no longer have an experience with this novel where i just think ah yes what a what a kind of intimate if off kilter and maybe philosophical like late night sweet moment for two people instead it's like this creepy leering author's interpretation based on a dance he shared with this this guy he didn't even really know this kind of like stranger slash confidant maybe um I don't know. I just feel like it's going to be exhausting to keep saying that over and over to this book now. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I don't know. It 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 changes it in for me after finding out that it's it's Zuckerman Zuckerman's perspective. Not only am I questioning, you know, like the validity of of these points, but also it it makes it seem even more like heavy-handedly symbolic everything that has been portrayed to us is from zuckerman who is a writer but also seems to be an academic therefore it's like we have to look even like look at it even more as like a symbolism everything is symbolic of something is something that zuckerman had in his particular mind about right each movement and it's just it's a lot to I, I feel like in the first half when we weren't I would I wouldn't say condemning Roth I was like lightly kind of kidding about him writing this in a way where it's like okay we know you're a lit professor you're clearly yeah. flexing your muscles like I get it it's you know a lot of it works for me because I, I like that register of writing but also it was you know kind of laughable at times where it's just like alright man you don't have to do soliloquies on every page like it's interesting but a, a bit exhausting Th- but, and this is why in the first half we, I, I said so vehemently too. People should not write books about their own profession. Just stop doing this because this is what happens. You take a fundamentally like pretty interesting narrative, and then you make it all about you. Now, now I cannot read this book anymore about it being a complex interpretation of American life in the 90s, race issues, all that. I mean, of course you can read it that way and should. It still has that stuff. But now it's like the only thing I'm thinking about at the end of this book is, what does this book have to say about authors then? Because he just made this all about this author guy. Like, now right. that, now that's all I have to think. It's like, and maybe this is us doing too much... Um, kind of lit study undergrad masters whatever readings of something but it's like you did that by putting the narrative frame this way you just called into question every single thing i thought i was interpreting about this book now i have to add that extra lens to it it's like i can't i can't just interpret it in the normal literary modes i now have to add another interpretive layer to it which just 
Uh, I'm going to get sick of bringing this up. I feel like I'm already making the listeners exhausted, but I just, it's like <laughs> every time I have a thought now, though, I, maybe you disagree. Maybe you're just like, no, we can just ignore this and, and do our, you know, do some interesting thinking. But it just, it feels like those moments have to be completely reinterpreted. Uh, again, in a scene of just quiet intimacy and this kind of philosophical, you've got these two polar opposites in a way, Coleman and Fawny. It's like, oh, what an interesting scene to interpret. And it's like, well, now I can't interpret them as characters at all. Now I have to interpret them as imaginings of another character intra to the narrative. Um, I don't know. Just exhausting. <laughs> it is. And, yeah. and I found myself just, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to reject that. <laughs> and I, like honestly, yeah, it's, on. yeah. yeah. It's, uh, the other way I thought of it, maybe this will be our final thoughts on this, because otherwise I'm, I'm just going to incessantly bring it up uh, and I have to get out of this space. <laughs> <Said space. laughs> but maybe this is the final thought. What I thought then was that perhaps the way the novel I wanted to read would have been created would have been, okay, every chapter that Zuckerman is in, explicitly in, is the book he's writing. And then the rest of it is a disconnected, like, not omniscient, well, I guess it would be like an omniscient narrator, but yeah, just like an actual glimpse into their lives. And then when we're brought back to Zuckerman's point of view, that's what he's writing. Uh, But again, though, that's quite clearly not what's happening. I mean, it's explicitly not. The book makes it clear that the, the thing you're holding in your hands when you read the novel is the thing Zuckerman wrote. <laughs> and so you can't you can't have the interpretation I just laid out, which is the one I think I would have preferred. Um, but if, if your brain just wants to process it that way, that's fine. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's OK. It's also like. I have quotes pulled for this section, obviously. Like, I had quotes about um, Les's point of view, about how he feels about murdering. I have thought things about Coleman and his pillow talk. But instead of talking about those things on the character level, now I have to be like, oh, this is how Zuckerman thinks they would do it. And what does that say about Zuckerman, this man who led us through this, like, pretty now clearly refracted and tilted narrative? Um I just hate that it did that to me. I just hate it. <laughs> but it's funny, though, because I love so much about the book. Like, I overall, I kind of love the book. Uh, I yeah. love that it reminded me of these, like, complex and messy postmodern things I enjoyed reading. But it's like, it also kind of ruined all the stuff I wanted to talk about. <laughs> um, all right, let me, yeah. let me finish my summary, though, and get out of this. And then we can, we'll just do the conversations anyway. But it, when a book does something like this in the second half, we have to, I felt like we had to address it right away. Anyway, um, so yeah, they have this philosophical pillow talk story. The next morning, though, things turn for the worst when at breakfast, um, Coleman kind of presses her about current events. I think he, of course, it's about Clinton, the sex scandal. And when he presses her about this or talks to her about it, she flees. She's like really frustrated and is like, don't change who I am. Don't make me, you know, don't lecture me. Don't teach me. I'm not here to be you know, taught by you. I'm just here to enjoy this relationship anyway. And she flees to like a nature preserve or some kind of bird shelter or something like a wilderness shelter. (laughs) Apparently she's been there before. This is a place of calm for her. She spent some time there uh, with a crow named Prince, which is an interesting move. She also leaves Prince a piece of jewelry that Coleman gave her at the end. It seems like a comforting place to her, a bird that kind of brings her comfort. Then out of nowhere, Um, And out of a deeply, or after rather, a deeply traumatizing trip to the Vietnam War Memorial, Les, 
maybe drives Coleman and Fawny off a road, killing them both. He's in a really extreme disassociated kind of murder mode and doesn't seem to have control over his mind or body. But also now we know that that's Zuckerman's interpretation. The whole thing's probably made up and it's Zuckerman's refracted like emotional trauma, yada yada. Like (laughs) it's no longer an ambiguous killing. It's like this dude author is making this up because he's paranoid about less. So there's that. Uh, Maybe again, who knows? The whole thing now again is makes like three layers of no sense but anyway um and then at the end the part i'm cutting the most time out of because it's the part i thought failed even before the zuckerman reveal it's the part i thought didn't really work the the best and it's the really long very long section about the young professor's love life delphine about the shame of her mother and her influence over her and her professional struggles and successes and and then in the end basically she has a meltdown and tries to frame Coleman for sending a fake email from her account and it's really overlong and it's really boring and I thought really terrible even before the Zuckerman twist I was like this is really uninteresting like Roth is off on one here (laughs) Uh, maybe I don't know maybe you like that section but it's I was like this is 30 pages too long why is this going on for so long and it's not that interesting but anyway that's how the section concludes Uh, with all that rambling out of the way let's Let's, let's do some quotes, though. Let's talk about some details. I know I've been so negative about the frame here, but we can still dive into a bunch of stuff. What do you want to start with? <laughs> um, yeah, so I'll start with the the scene from uh, the concert itself, um, mm-hmm. which is towards the beginning there. And uh, I was just wondering, like... And so I wrote my notes before the realization that because it's not until well, the last chapter right that yeah, that it's revealed that he actually wrote yeah. He even calls it the human stain, says the book he's writing, says he'll send it to all that stuff. Yeah, that's that's the very last chapter. Here's what I would say is the section you chose, the concert, is actually the safest because he is the main character or point of view in that section and Mm -hmm. that is also him being in the section and so i think you're safe to rip on any analysis or let any analysis rip there like because it's it's actually where we he's not assuming an identity of another person he's not putting on the mask of a real person um and so i say cut loose do whatever awesome so (laughs) The, the pianist who comes up and, and plays um, and is like the way that he is described is he's like not what you would normally imagine uh, for a pianist he's actually very large not delicate looking um, he's got like a beard and all these other things so he's he's the opposite of what I suppose um, most people would imagine uh, for that role and but he plays beautifully um, and is um, uh, just a, a great force. But this is all also couched in Zuckerman's like use of a lot of like hints at death. There's some metaphors that use death and mm-hmm. and other things. Um, what this is a, of course like before I, I knew that it was Zuckerman anyway. But right, right. What is the, why is the, he focuses so much on the way that the pianist looks, um, Mm -hmm. and, and how discordant that feels. Like, is that just a riff on the fact that, like, Coleman is, like, he looks a certain way, but he's actually 
like a yeah. different like An- another uh, theme thematic motif layer to the yeah to the whole appearance is not being what they are coleman obviously living as a jewish man but being a black man probably just another it could also be about their relationship itself uh, i suppose if you wanted to do that level or that type of analysis it's sort of because this is one of the only times they go out in public right fawny and right. coleman and so it's sort of the the meeting of these two things obviously if we interpret interpret coleman as this sort of paragon of i don't know the academic life the intelligent life whatever and fawny is is much more experiential lived in obviously there's like trauma to that too but so you could interpret it either of those directions i think either is kind of like a representation of their relationship maybe um or perhaps just of the book's themes did you take it a certain way yeah i was trying to analyze it in that way and i also was thinking that this is the second time that Zuckerman has met Fania. The first time was the whole cow thing. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> that we remember so fondly. Um, <laughs> I do. I do remember it fondly. Um, and that was like in a, in a, you know, it was just her and the cow surrounded by nature. She's very, well, according to Zuckerman's perception of her anyway, that she's um, very at one with nature, very comfortable. And then like, this concert is a concert, especially like a symphonic uh, concert like this. It's like the height of culture, right? It's very sure, yeah. elite. Not not everybody is going to go to um, listen to classical music on a weekday, right? And Definitely. so it's the complete opposite of, of the first time that he's met her. And so I that the difference there and and also in this instance she's out with coleman silk and she's actually like they kind of look like a couple and they he's talking direct uh coleman silk is talking directly to her and seems to be perhaps like explaining certain things to her yeah i just found some there's some language of control too which could add into your interpretation of the pianist for sure but Mm it's it on 210 my 210 it says coleman talking quietly to fawny again his hand between her shoulder blades the palm of his hand against her spine guiding her along as he explained whatever he was now explaining about whatever it was she did not know so either of course that's the truth of the matter and that's how we should interpret these characters or that's Zuckerman, you know, projecting something, (laughs) assuming we have to add that layer. But yes, it's, it was an interesting way to start and a good, a good example of how, frankly, you can take quiet scenes, plot wise, quiet scenes and, you know, with the right writing, uh, spruce in a lot of, or spruce up a lot of meaning, add a lot of meaning to them. It was a good scene. I thought. Yeah. I, I thought that that was interesting and, um, the the control issues too is something that I wanted to to discuss as well is like is it is Coleman Silk is like is Zuckerman pointing out that Coleman Silk is very much influencing her life at this point or well I think if we were to take so let's do the annoying again parallel interpretations thing if you're to take the scene with Fania dancing as Zuckerman is not writing this and we're just experiencing it then I think that's a great scene to throw in some some twist to it not some contrast I would say but at least to give her some real life and autonomy and to show that sort of their relationship is on a type of equal footing um 
I think there's another way to read that scene is him being dismissive, like the way he just says, keep dancing. E- even on 229, you know, he says, keep dancing. She says, this stuff is the important stuff. She says, if I abandon thinking that, what? Thinking what? I was whoring a little cunt from early on. Were you? And then she, she says, he always told himself it wasn't him, it was me. The stepfather, yes, that's what he told himself. Maybe he was even right, but I had no choice at 8, 9, and 10. It was the brutality that was wrong. And then they talk more about that abuse. And she says, it's like when you're a child in a war, you ever see those pictures? It's like that. It's as big as a bomb. And they kind of go on. So it's like, it's obviously deadly serious. Then intercut with these keep dancing things. I mean, this is how this is intimate conversation sometimes goes. It's, you know, sometimes it has these tonal shifts or tangents or however you wanted to put it. But it's... I don't know. Again, that scene on its own, I think, added a lot of life to her character, which she already, mm-hmm. in the first half, had a nice moment that I was like, okay, thank goodness we're getting at least a little bit of insight about her. She has that long philosophical contemplation at lunch, the pizza lunch, where she's thinking about, what was it, birds again? <laughs> crows The crows, or yeah. Always crows. <laughs> yeah, clearly, I mean, it, which aren't those the most intelligent birds? Shall we pick up on the simple symbolism of, of that? They're sort of these, mm-hmm. I don't know, they're associated kind of too with like, I don't, not evil doing, but they're definitely a bit eerie. They're eerie figures, but then super intelligent. Anyway, I, but then of course, so parallel track, as I mentioned, we have, now have to interpret that scene as Zuckerman's kind of assumption about her. And this is what Zuckerman wants her to be like. This is also how he wants Coleman to seem, not how Coleman was. And mm-hmm. so Coleman, I think, I, I doubt Zuckerman would want Coleman to come off as like leering or creepy. So I think it's it's more of an unlocking is how I kind of read it, that it's like, oh, her presence unlocks a simpler state for him. It, it, unlo- it allows him to be more relaxed and to not analyze everything. And he gets in a couple references and has his clever little professorial moments. But in the end, Zuckerman just wants him to seem competent, confident, and just kind of like relaxed with her. Yeah. And that of course, yeah, and of course, um, as characters, they're now not characters at all. They're an imagination of a author <laughs> recluse dude. That yeah. <laughs> so there's there's that. Um, any other things to talk about in part one? I know I sucked most of the air out of the conversation with the um, the thoughts about Zuckerman, but no, not at all. Yeah. Um, the so the Delphine stuff. Uh, I agree. It was. Yeah. <laughs> going on a bit too long but I mean he and you know we saw Delphine at the beginning and she was like uh, one of the people that really pushed for Coleman Silk's um, outing yeah uh, ousting yeah. rather um, and so w- I expected that we would get, go back to her character um, but definitely the way that the story turned for her was uh not at all the way that I had. Very generous of Roth. Let's do this analysis from <laughs> Roth's point of view, not Zuckerman's. But yeah, very generous of Roth to give her basically a... I Man, it, it, it made me feel conflicted because the easy thing you could lever, leverage against this book is like it writes such horrible women characters. But I think mm-hmm. Fawny is pretty great in if in a way of like not that not she's morally great, though she might be. But she's just like a great, interesting, complex study. And then in the in contrast, I feel like Roth, who himself was a professor for a very long time at various like Princeton, like elite institutions. I feel like mm-hmm. he is just going on a screed with Delphine. Like 
like he she clearly mm-hmm. is meant to embody and i'm doing the roth analysis not the zuckerman but it's like clearly as an author the way he treats her the way he infantilizes her it just all felt a little too simple and convenient with her and kind of like yeah it was infantilizing the way i know it's weird to say it's infantilizing to write like a a desperate man woman seeking man ad but it but it felt that way like it's mm-hmm. you're telling me this this woman with this level of intelligence is like resorting to this and can't I, I don't know i mean again i know that just because you achieve a lot in your career doesn't make you emotionally comfortable or something but it felt all a little too convenient and also like just such an obvious academic takedown of a certain type of intellectual and so it was just kind of like i don't know roth you, you, this might this feels like a personal vendetta of the author uh of the author roth uh, to me but i it also again it could be because it was 20 pages too long it it really was the the there were so many asides that were being explored with Delphine and mm-hmm. um that I thought, you know, it was some of the stuff that he was talking about was like, I mean, it was interesting. He especially mm-hmm. like his the the take on feminism when she's talking about like, oh, American feminism is different from uh French feminism because uh, American feminism is uh, like one embraces certain gender roles, the other or doesn't discount traditional gender roles, and right, the other right. like um, it makes it seem like evil and and these things. Um, so there were some like interesting ideas, but but they ended up just being like almost. Well, like lectures in some ways. They are. And the email scandal aspect of it was very limp and kind of a lame plot yes. move. And so that was the other yeah. part of it, too, where I was like, oh, this is the... Firstly, her doing the letter panic in the front half was already straining credulity, I thought. It was kind of also just kind of a, I don't know, like a limp little attempt at annoying Coleman or something. It was already just kind of like, does, it, does this even need to be in here? Like, why is this? Yeah. It doesn't really drive anything forward. It doesn't even really affect the scandal at all. And it, yeah. ba- and it yeah. barely shifts Coleman's emotions. You know what it feels like now? It feels like the only evidence Zuckerman have, and now he's making stuff up. Because, <laughs> right. uh, you know, thanks for that, Roth. Like, now I get to interpret it that way. But um, but no, so even in the front half, I was like, eh, not the most interesting, brilliant move. And then this email thing, just it just took forever to get there the result of it is is just kind of lame and again doesn't have any profound it's like the narrative dismisses it right away which is maybe roth's mm-hmm. you know big commentary on intellectuals like her or people like her or something that it's just like immediately dismissed and forgotten as sort of another absurdity or, or whatever improbability but yeah it's it just felt too long convenient and digressive um or like a digression to to really have its place in this story. It just, I don't know of all the things this book is meant to deal with. I don't know if it's insights. It's like, what did it add to the conversation of the novel about academia and things being taken out of context or people being attacked over something minor, like personal responsibility language. Like it didn't really add to any of that. It's just kind of his way to hate on like academic feminists and stuff and it was it just all felt a little too simple to me and like overlong it was like all right this is your this feels like a personal thing for you not a not a narrative essential thing <laughs> um but you know at least at least we got her um you know five page brainstorm session about how to frame her own desire uh, <laughs> like in an email or whatever whatever the hell that was it was like okay this is yeah, I don't know. It was bold, at least. Any other thoughts from this section? I'm going to cut some of my quotes because I've already gone on so long. 
Uh, nope. All right. It's all good. Let's move to what we'll, I guess we'll call part two. Like we said, these are very long parts and narratively have a lot to do. Um, it's called The Purifying Ritual. It's the final section of the book. You can, yeah, take it away, start the summary. I'll try and chime in, and I won't. I'll try not to say anything about Zuckerman in this half. It's impossible, but <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, yeah. Um, in this final chapter, the narrator remains Zuckerman, the author... Because we find out that he is the the author of this book. Yep. <laughs> um, he attends both Fania and Coleman's funerals, which are two vastly different experiences. Um, Fania's funeral, um, organized by the women she was renting the place from on the dairy farm, focused on Fania's love and connection to nature. Also, Smokey, whom um, we briefly met at in the the first half of the novel is Fania's boss and ex-lover. He -hmm. attended and focused on her good work as a janitor and her connection to those she cleaned up after. It was a very weird speech that he gave about how great Mm -hmm. a worker she was. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, Coleman's uh, funeral, however, was more like a production, a grand production. Um, his children had arranged it so that, I, I believe it's pronounced Keeble? Yeah, um, it's Dr. Is it Herbert Keeble? No, that sounds too, that sounds made up. That sounds like a, like a <laughs> um, teddy bear of a person. <laughs> Herbert yeah. Keeble. Um, yeah, shoot, it is. It's is- Herb Keeble. Oh, it is Herb. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so, uh, he's the faculty member that Coleman felt most betrayed by, uh, because Keeble was the, the first black professor at Athena and he was hired by Coleman. Right. Um, so Coleman's whole like push to change Athena began with Keeble. Can I interject something here? Yes, of um, course. This entire, this is a, a, an authorial Roth criticism, not a Zuckerman one, which I'm going to have to keep clarifying annoyingly, mm-hmm. annoying myself and surely no listeners who have stuck with us this long. <laughs> no, one's, <laughs> no one's had the patience for this. One. No, but uh, this struck me as having big, like Philip Roth, I have black friends energy. Like the convenience of it, the absolute, the absolving nature of it, the kind of finality of it, um, it just felt very much like, no, look, see, I, I can't be racist. I did this good thing, and he's happy right. about me. <laughs> it was like, yeah. which I, I, I just can't imagine that Roth meant it to read that way. I think to him, it's, I think it'd be it's supposed to be a bit more clean. But yeah. but yeah, that's it felt very much that way. I kind of rolled my eyes while reading it. It was like, okay, yeah, you just get everything you want. Like it's gonna this is very convenient. <laughs> Thanks for this inclusion. But um <laughs> anyway, sorry, keep keep going. Yeah, um so his uh Coleman's kids essentially use Keeble they he um Zuckerman implies that they somehow <clears throat> got Keeble to agree to do this um, yeah. in order to um, vindicate Coleman. So Keeble calls out Athena College for destroying Coleman on an untruth. Um, and he does not, however, mention the untruth surrounding Fania and even Coleman's death. He just focuses on the 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 spook language. Um Lots of, there's lots of gossip there that Zuckerman is quick to point out um, that doesn't make much sense. 
but people who are supposedly educated, um, and here these are attacks on the faculty of Athena, are quick to pass judgment and spread the word of these lies. Mm -hmm. um, Zuckerman also is convinced that less is the reason the two died that night, but nobody's really giving that theory credit, so he's trying to build a case against Les. Um, Don't worry, begs, this, this long digressive novel he writes, biography novel, <laughs> autobiography novel, novel autobiography, biography novel, <laughs> uh, that'll take care of it, sorry. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, he begs Fania's sick and elderly father who went to the funeral um he like follows him around and he's like begging him send me anything give me that diary that the caretaker um wants to get rid of uh, to, so he wants anything that could be considered evidence against less he's looking for anything and he's begging uh fania's biological and and very ill father to send him any evidence yeah and he strikes up a conversation and a friendship with ernestine Col Coleman's sister who attended um, the funeral and quite a, quite a lucky yeah quite a lucky find yeah and and that's how um, by by talking and, and really looking at Ernestine that's how he realized um, Coleman's big life secret there um, and he even goes so far as to seek out less himself which is the final scene um, and that's um, that takes place over an iced over lake where Col uh, where Les is ice fishing, um, and yeah, that that's how the novel ends. Actually, is with um, Zuckerberg kind of backing away from Les on the ice. Yeah, it's an intense final scene that we'll dig into. And at least with that scene, I don't have to trip over my feet and give a billion disclaimers about who the narrator <laughs> slash author slash interpreter is. So to yep, me, it was the yep. cleanest, best scene of the whole book, for if not for other reasons, that reason. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what did you make? So before I dive into that, let's do a little bit on Keeble's speech. I guess I'll start there just because I mentioned it in that kind of joking way. But it, it had very much... It, you know you know how these characters are they speak for pages at a time it's all soliloquy <laughs> seemingly and so you get all these kind of too clean too simple solutions to problems at times mm -hmm. and so at the end we've got these long digressions uh, from Keeble a couple quotes on 310 it says what he was forced to undergo the accusations the interviews the inquiry remains a blight on the integrity of this institution to this day and on this day more than ever here in the New, Eng in New England most identified historically with the American individualist resistance to the coercions of a censorious community Hawthorne, Melville and Thoreau come to mind an American individualist who did not think that the weightiest thing in life were the rules, and American individuals who refused to leave unexamined the orthodoxies of the customary and established truth, and American individualists who did not always live in compliance with majority standards of decorum and taste, and American individuals par excellence was once again so savagely traduced by friends and neighbors that he lived estranged from them until his death, robbed of his moral authority by their moral stupidity. Yes, it is we, the morally stupid, censorious community, or is that how you read that word? like censorship censoria okay i thought so who have abased ourselves and having so shamefully besmirched coleman soak's good name i speak particularly of those like myself who knew from close contact the depth of his commitment to athena and the purity of his dedicator dedication as an educator and who out of whatever eluded or deluded motive betrayed him nonetheless i say it again we were portrayed him betrayed coleman and betrayed iris and then he talks about her death and there's some tears 
well, pretty grand of you there, Roth, to to put your beloved, you know, professor alike you character in this grand tradition of American individualism, <laughs> you know, to put himself upon the the literary pedestal with those great minds, etc. You know, put yourself in the pantheon. Not again. I know Roth isn't the Roth isn't Coleman, but the, you know, just happens to be a professor and a an intellectual and an independent mind and spirit, all that. It just, I don't know. It, it's granted the whole thing's a bit grandiose. So what can you do at the end? It's like, why am I complaining about this when I enjoyed other things like it? But it, it was just another example of how it's like, ah, yes. And now the mouthpiece for this, for this absolution is going to be a black professor who Coleman hired just to make it nice and tidy to make sure we don't mm-hmm. lose, to make sure we don't view Coleman as an evil, you know, villain or something. Um, right. Just, just to be sure. And it, I, it, it just felt a little overwhelming at the time to read all of that. I'm not sure how you reacted. It's, you know, it's interesting. Certainly there's a ton of thematic stuff we could unpack and maybe should. Um, but it, it all read to me as like a bit, a bit of an eye roll. Uh, it was meant to be, I think, yeah. right? Like, because Zuckerman points out that it, he was like coerced in some way. Like perhaps like the, the kids were just like, hey, dude, like you really, you know, screwed over our dad for what right and right. um and so he even like I, I remember in the speech at one point people like backtracks and he's like when i said that i couldn't be with him on this it wasn't that i didn't support him i thought that i could from behind the scenes do right. more good for coleman than to be just like yeah backing him up like straight up like that which was yeah well there's also there's also the frustration of zuckerman to bring it in the zuckerman lens maybe we should make Mm -hmm. i'll make a sound effect for the episode every time i say zuckerman (laughs) zuckerman (laughs) (laughs) but to bring to bring that lens in he just gets frustrated by the end zuckerman does so it's so you know i i've been lambasting roth a bit for this for this narrative move here at the end with this guy but you know there's a touch of acknowledgement that yes maybe this is all too convenient and maybe this is this this won't just absolve you know coleman and yada yada so there there is a bit of acknowledgement there at least a touch because even zuckerman himself is like this is too little too late you know this is all everyone trying to release their own guilt and not have to stress about you know or not have to take blame so yeah there's a there's a touch of acknowledgement to it in the story yeah important Um, to say the one thing that i also noticed about um both funerals so I was talking to, uh, in my summary, I was saying that they were very different. The, the one thing that is the same is that Smokey attended both funerals. Right, right. And he makes a point of saying like, oh, I see Smokey here at Coleman's funeral as well. And I was just mm-hmm. like, why, why is he pointing that out? Like, I don't, I don't know how you, what you think about that, but like, that was something that he... I didn't honestly. Yeah, I'd let, I'll let you take the narrative lead. It didn't. It didn't grab me, but it is important, though. I mean, between him and Zuckerman, there aren't any other. Are there any other crossovers at both? No. Yeah. That's it. So I. Yeah, that's worth analyzing. I honestly have not thought about it at all. <laughs> Y'all have to again let you jump in on that because I'm like I don't even. I was so caught up on so many other themes, ideas going on that. Um, that yeah. Any thoughts on that? Um, I was just thinking, like, the the connection is, like, uh, twofold, right? Because Smokey um, has the uh, academic 
connection because he works at the the university at the college um just like you know that's that, that's also how uh fania has a connection to the college aside from coleman um but there's also like we know Smokey in particular because he had a sexual relationship with Fania as well. So it's like he's kind of like the I suppose like the twofold um, academic, but also he's the the nature connection because of the sex, which Zuckerman makes a point of like it's natural to be sexual. Everything sensuality is natural. Right. So yeah. nature and academia. Um, kind of like rolled into Smokey, I suppose, who's like hmm. both. I don't know. Oh, yeah. I, no, I like that analysis, too. I think that's interesting. I'm on board. Um, let's let's talk about something else as well. Just another moment where I was feeling a bit of a wrath in the narrative and was couldn't help but uh, question if this was a character move or if this was a wrath move. And it is the introduction of Ernestine. Um, but specifically the digression she has on 328 and 29 uh, there's so many ideas she unpacks here I'll try and read some of the quotes there's the one thing she talks about the failures of modern education then she goes on a long bit about how at graduation people used to get a copy of the constitution she says one has to be so terribly frightened of every word one uses whatever happened to the first amendment of the constitution of the United States of America in my childhood as in yours it was recommended that each student who graduated from high school in New Jersey get at graduation two things a diploma and a copy of the Constitution. Do you recall that? And then she talks about economics. She also, in this kind of long speech, talks about American history and people are getting more foolish and stupid, like having to take more remedial classes they don't learn. There's also this quote, they haven't even heard of Moby Dick, much less read it. Youngsters were coming to me the year I retired telling me that for Black History Month, they would only read a biography of a black by a black. What difference, I would ask them, if it's a black author, if it's a white author. I'm impatient with Black History Month altogether. I like having a Black History Month in February and concentrating study on... um, onto that milk that's just about to go sour. You can still drink it, but it just doesn't taste right. If you're going to study and find out about Matthew Henson, then it seems to me you just do Matthew Henson with the other explorers. And then Mr. Zuckerman talks about his his ignorance about this. A lot of ideas there. So here's let's start with the first big picture question before we dive into any of those details. Again, are you feeling the wrath here to put this speech into the voice of a black woman? It feels, it just feels very much what a an elite, published, accomplished white author like Roth would want to say about the world, about mm. people not reading enough classics, about education falling apart, about the role of mobs in culture versus individuality and like rugged intelligence and all that kind of st- like it. It just all feels a bit. I, I, are these really the concerns of this woman after the life she's lived? Like, why is she going on about this speech? I don't, I mean, obviously as a character, she can have whatever interest she wants to, but she's also determined by an author who created her. And so to have this digression at the end about how it's like, it, basically it's it's a race blind speech in, in one way, because she's essentially saying like, people shouldn't even think about race. It should all just be the same. And it's like, interesting. I mean, I know, Obviously, uh, every every group is a spectrum and there's no, you know, universal black experience. But to have a character at the end, the final character of the novel, who's who's black, African-American to like this is their final kind of coda speech. <laughs> like, I don't know. Again, I kind of had to I had to uh, tilt my head at it a little and be like, huh, is, is this 
a character move uh, or is this Roth letting something out? Um, I don't know. It just there were enough of these moments at the end that it didn't feel discordant or something because it's all in the same narrative voice. You know, it's all very thoughtful and kind of learned and and situates a lot of ideas. But yeah, it also didn't quite feel uh, natural in a narrative sense unless you felt like it did and, you know, jump in. The, the way that I analyzed um, Ernestine's speeches, um, particularly about, about race, um, she's got two brothers. So Coleman Selk, who um, didn't want race to be important, but in the end kind right. of made his own race like the most important aspect of himself. Yeah, incidentally. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and then you have Ernestine, who, according to her speeches, believes that race, you know... It, it shouldn't, you know, it's like, it doesn't matter. Like, yeah, race blindness whatever. theory, essentially. Right. And then you've got her other brother, oh, what was his name, Walt? Yeah, Walt? who's who's yeah. intensely sort of, I mean, he hates Coleman. He also seems more intensely proud. Right, so he said, like, uh, she, according to Ernestine, Walt is the opposite in that he, he focuses so much on... Um, on moving uh, on on the movement of making um, people more aware of mm-hmm. uh, and know, achieving um, kind of purposefully racial injustices exactly um, so we have three different ways of kind of perceiving and dealing with um, race issues I suppose so that's that's how I perceived yeah. it is just and she's meant that. to be kind of an um, not an interpreter of both. And also not a middle ground? What's the word I'm looking for? But she is kind of caught between them, in a sense. She has her own version of both, you know? Again, it it has such interesting implications for the story, for its ideas of race and everything. And I I think maybe it's just at this point in a 300-plus page novel, when when characters keep doing these long speeches, maybe I just became more critical over time and began to, like... Maybe the narrative just began to grate on me a bit more, where I was just kind of like, all right, Roth, like... Are you writing a character here, or do you just need to let something out about, like, yeah. you've been in education your whole life, or practically, you know, you, again, he's a very accomplished, like, professor and well-respected, published, all that, and it's just like, is this just what you think of students today? Is this just kind of how you see the intellectual trends in college going? It's all well and good, mm-hmm. I guess. It's just, you know how we are. When when your characters in novels become not characters, but instead mouthpieces for something, yeah. it just feels kind of mm-hmm. obvious, or uh, frustrating, I guess, and it's, this novel does a lot of things well um and some things infuriatingly <laughs> i guess is what i would say <laughs> so it's yeah I, I just i definitely held head head tilted like yeah i cocked my head to that and was like i don't know man you might be biting off more than you can chew by putting things like this in here um, yeah so there's um three female characters that we explore three different um narratives which is interesting we've got ernestine then we've got um fania and we've got delphine Delphine and Fania are both actually given their own narrative structures, right? We have mm-hmm. the stream of consciousness, um, scroll <laughs> digression with Fania, and then with Delphine, we've got um, her overly academic a- a- analytical discussions. Mm-hmm. Um, but then with Ernestine at the end, she's given a voice, but strictly through Zuckerman. It's Zuckerman summarizing what she's saying. Yeah, it's odd though too, because yep, let's do Zuckerman lens. 
<laughs> no, no post-production. I'm just doing it live. But yeah, because this is one thing where we have to assume, based on the novel's conceits, this has to be the most accurate thing he's writing about, right? Because he was there. I mean, this must be this must be pretty close to what she th- believes. Obviously, I'm sure it's not perfectly recalled. But this must be, within the narrative's own conceits, one of the most quote-unquote true things in the book, right? Like, way more true than anything about Fania Les or Coleman, <laughs> who we never, like, they never get a direct interaction with. Actually, no, he does open the book by talking to Coleman. So, but, but Fania and Les, though, this is, the, this is more accurate, quote-unquote, Zuckerman accurate, than literally anything we learn about them. So I think analytically, in that sense, maybe that's part of my frustration, too, is, like, clearly Roth means this to be pretty clean. This is like just a thing that happened, not a thing that we as readers have to question because of Zuckerman. But is that an overread, you think? Am I, is that wrong or something? Am I bit, no, I don't not? think so. Yeah, it just feels yeah, that way. And, and maybe that was, again, part of why I bucked against it a bit, just because it was... I don't know. Yeah, it just felt a little too clean during a novel or um, throughout a novel that, that didn't, you know. Um, but then again, mm-hmm. speechifying, if we want to use that simple term, is pretty common in this book also. So there's that. Yeah. <laughs> so sadly, I think we'll have to cut off here just to make sure we finish in an hour and a half. This is clearly going to be one of our longer episodes. That's what happens when I digress and just complain a lot of the time. <laughs> hopefully complain <laughs> and analyze. <laughs> Can both well, be done. there's a lot the... to analyze. Yeah, hopefully, I, hopefully it's not just that. Hopefully there's some insights too for, for you listeners about narrative choices and voice. But I do want to say this. I think the final scene's the best part of the whole book and we're not even really going to get to unpack it. <laughs> just because I ran a side yeah. of time. I, I will just add that it's it's rich in mood. It has a hint of threat and thrill to it. The I think it, it's one of the only times where the setting really matters in a symbolic archetypal way, <laughs> which is funny mm-hmm. to say, but otherwise it's otherwise this is a pretty clean read about just academic institutions, which is fine. Um, but that's in terms of setting, it, I don't know. Do you feel like you were um, absorbed by the setting at any other time in the story. There, there's some that I think matter, uh, but it, this is the one where I thought it was the most rich. It was clearly him trying to end it in kind of this very big picture, again, like archetypal way. Yeah, the the setting here is what struck me as well. The the ice cold beauty mm-hmm. of everything versus the 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 very real threat of less with um, a, a giant axe <laughs> yeah like a drill bit or whatever it is yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think too it's it's appropriate for this kind of confrontation almost a showdown it's a very subtle showdown of course but this confrontation showdown to happen in this this stripped down just clean dead environment it's it's of course serene yeah. but also terrifying and lonely and yeah mm-hmm. i just thought the mood of it was right the the dialogue it finally had some banter in it which you know this is a book of speeches not often of like back and forth or banter and this this had that too it had some real dynamic discussion i I think in another podcast we do 30 minutes on this but instead you got my 30 minutes to open or 30 minutes i I keep saying my i just know it was my complaint you were just kind of having to put up with it and and analyze (laughs) but like that opening 30 minutes about like how the zuckerman thing kind of blew this book open um in another version of this novel we would have spent 30 minutes on this scene but those are just some brief thoughts i had did you have any other thoughts on the final scene like quick analyses or something um, the only thing that I I would say mm-hmm. is that the the final scene was like complete enough that I feel like 
that scene could have been almost like a short, short story. Truly. Like there's, yeah, it was, I thought it was just really well done. It had a lot of those elements too, that you would normally, you'd spend time in a short story, almost overanalyzing mm-hmm. it in a fun way, you know, in a literary yeah. way, because it had so much of that going on. Yeah. When you, when you For play sure. with setting like that and give it time to, yeah, give it time to kind of infuse into the the rest it yeah i thought it worked really well and it was a strong ending but by that point i was so irate that everything i thought about the book was wrong (laughs) (laughs) that i was just kind of like you know what this is a great ending but i don't even know what to think of this book anymore i have to literally reread this whole book and i'm not going to but i did you know even though i really liked it it was just like i'm not doing that (laughs) i'm keeping my thoughts how they were uh, and i'll remember it for that reason anyway let's move to our final two Uh segments our book club part twos we always end with a couple of uh, concluding segments we'll start with critical assistance. So this is when we go outside of ourselves for some analysis. We look up book reviews. Uh, we've done YouTube videos or even podcasts in the past, but I think we both pulled articles for this one. Amanda, why don't you start off with yours? What did you pick for some criticism and what do you want to talk about? Sure. I got mine from Carcass Reviews. Oh, yeah. Good old Carcass. Um, so I've just got a, a couple of, of quotes here. Um, Roth's extraordinary recent productivity, the prize-winning Sabbath Theater, 1995, and American Pastoral, um, 1997, continues apace with this impressively replete and very moving chronicle of an academic scandal and its impact on both the aging professor at its center and his friend, alter ego novelist Nathan Zuckerman. Um, uh, So I was looking at an impressively replete and very moving chronicle. So I was yeah. like, do I think of it as moving? I don't think I do. Yeah, I think... I don't know. I, I was moved by... What's well, that thing, right? I don't think I... Gosh, this is an odd comparison. I'm going to sound like the most kind of 21st century illiterate book blogger when I say this. But I I genuinely (laughs) thought like emotionally, remember that young adult book we did with the father who died or the grandfather who died? We are, we are okay. I I thought parts of that like had my emotions gripped more, but this grips Mm -hmm. my mind. I mean, a thousand Mm -hmm. million immeasurably times more. (laughs) And so I I did find it moving or gripping, but it just feels like a completely different register to me. I don't, I don't know. It's like, it doesn't, I don't get whisked away in narratives like this. Um, And I think when you have characters give speeches for multiple pages at a time, it's difficult to have that move me emotionally. It's more like it's going to move my move my brain. (laughs) And maybe I'm being maybe I'm establishing a dichotomy that's too strong or false. But that's just kind of my reaction to it is. Yeah, I don't I, I never was page turning this with my heart beating wildly. I was page turning thinking you know how interesting this was or what does this imply or what what does this all represent or what's the yeah i don't know it's just a different thing yeah i i think that you you hit it right on the head there um it's moving academically it's moving mentally but emotionally there was definitely a disconnect for me as well it was it was purely a a mind exercise for me more so than something like we are okay where Emotionally, I was very much pulled forward in the narrative. Yeah, and I, I don't know. It's it, obviously there's this line of criticism in kind of pop culture these days that, yeah, you know, this often comes with like YA books, but it's, you know, if you're only reading YA, you know, are you really 
experiencing the complexities of life as you should? Are you thinking through things as you should? Is it, is it, are you living not like in an emotionally stunted way? That's way too harsh, but it, there's this, this kind of, it's frankly kind of elitist in a sense, but there's this line of thinking of like, you know, make sure you read complicated novels too, folks. Like make sure you're not just consuming mm-hmm. only media really fit for for teenagers or, or whatever and I, I that is i think there's a truth to that for sure i wish it wasn't packaged with so much judgment when i at times i kind of agree with it but it, at the same time a book like this which you know is objectively right like you couldn't hand this to a 15 year old and have them care it's just like impossible oh, oh the, the, like, no. the emotional untruth <laughs> of it the way it's written the style the density the reference i mean we could list every literary term right but I, yeah, it's like, could a book like this ever emotionally affect me? I hope I'm not stunted then. Maybe maybe I'm the stunted one because I read this and I'm like, yeah, I don't think a book like this could ever move me. Uh, but, you know, I also think about really high-minded kind of literary highbrow authors that have. So I know it's possible. I, I guess this one right. just didn't. So maybe I'm overthinking yeah. it, right? Like, <laughs> you don't have to be moved by every complicated grand work of literature. That's absurd. So, yeah, this one just didn't do it for me, I think. And, you know, fuck, fuck the Zuckerman stuff that frustrated me a lot. <laughs> so by that point, I was like, well, nope, I'm, nothing about this is going to move me. Now I'm in, like, hypercritical mode. <laughs> oh, gosh, it's my own stuff. Anyway, what other quotes? Um, there's another secret in Coleman's past, and Zuckerman Roth teases it out and explores its consequences in a back-and-forth narrative filled with surprises that strains plausibility severely while simultaneously involving us deeply with its vividly imagined characters. In addition to Coleman Silk, whose arrogance and and secretiveness in no way lessen our respect for him, Roth creates telling and unusually full characterizations. Yeah, okay. Um, So I think that with the narratives, yes. So we get a really good idea of Coleman Silk. We have a good idea of Fania. I think Fania was really fleshed out really well. Less in the end was fleshed out really well. Delphine, meh. Uh, (laughs) Kind of? She gets a lot of page count. So either either it was poorly done or I'm not reading it well. (laughs) I don't know which is true or or a third, uh, you know, interpretation. Yeah, yeah, she's... um, She's petulant, right? Like that's that's what I got. Right, she's an petulant. insecure, she's, she's like a genius, brat. an yeah. insecure genius, I guess, or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that some of the characters he did really well, and then others. Eh. See, can I just do this again, Amanda? Are you gonna? Am I? I'm like a. I need to be checked. I'm like an unchecked, annoying force. <laughs> D- did he do any of it though? Because it's all Zuckerman's right. imagination. Right. I don't right. <laughs> like. Every single thing about this book that it accomplishes, you have to then question when you're done with it because of the, you know, it would be absurd or what I would love, but it would be absurd. I I would love if there's just a page in the beginning of this book that you and I just kind of rushed over that literally says like I am Zuckerman I am writing this novel you're reading because because <laughs> I really think I really do think that would have not saved the book quote unquote but it would have helped me immensely and I wouldn't have felt as frustrated you know by mm-hmm. by this book at the end. It, that's all it needed. Give me in the first 10 pages, make it extremely clear that this neighbor he kind of knew, kind of didn't, is going to interpret his life for him. 
Uh, again, give me that throughout the whole thing. And so these narrative interludes, uh, Fawny especially was the most frustrating kind of victim of my interpretation just because I ended up loving those parts. I thought the crow bit was so strange and like sweet and weird and a bit creepy too. And like, uh, yeah, but then again, it's like, oh, Zuckerman just made that up. He just made it up just because he thought it would be interesting. Like, and now I have Mm -hmm. to, it's like it it refracts everything. So now all I can think about is him and I don't want to. (laughs) It's like, I want to think about the whole (laughs) cast of characters and I can't, you know, um, I don't know. Sorry. I did it again. But you, you said something that I was just like, God, I, I agree with you so much. And at the same time, I, I ha- my brain has to stop me from agreeing because it's like he, right. did, he did do it. He created a lot of complex, unusual, like rich characters. Uh, but did he? <laughs> or did he? Yeah. turn? It's like he handed them all over to this one version of almost like himself within the narrative or something weird like that. So, OK. Yeah. Anyway, um, any final quotes from this one? Yep, just one more. Um, And in the long, elegiac final scene, Zuckerman contrives a resolution that may confer forgiveness on them all, a marvel of imaginative empathy, generosity, and tact. Mm. Roth's late maturity looks more and more like his golden age. So... I haven't read anything else by Roth. I know that you've read... American Pastoral. It's like a really... That was like his big... I don't know, award-winning book or something. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought that was interesting that he kind of gives uh, some some interesting credit to the, the final scene um, there that we didn't get a chance to really um, delve into, but was definitely the best part of the book. And it seems like he also, the, the writer for Kirkus Reviews, agrees there. Um, Do you, I don't know. I, I don't think I would read the conclusion quite that way. But I, we also, yeah. again, I, I conceded the floor, I, again, to, like, analyzing the ending. I just don't think I would analyze it that way. Yeah. Um, I do think it has a bit of forgiveness in it, though. So that, yeah, and it, I think that it has some threat and bite to it. But the there's some imagery to play with, too, with the nature. So, I yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I, I don't know if I would quite mm-hmm. read the ending in such a kind way. But, but yeah, I, I respect it. Yeah. Me, too. My critical assistance is from the New York Times. I feel like we've done this author before, too. It's just a book of the Times review called Confronting the Failures of a Professor Who Passes By by Michiko Kakutani. Doesn't that name sound familiar? Maybe. It it just did to me, because I know I've pulled from the Times before, frankly, to sort of dunk on them sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Just because I find their book reviews to be book summaries a lot of the time and not a review, or not even an analysis. This one, I think, had some good, there were some good details in here that I pulled. So anyway, that's that's what I'm pulling from. Uh, As a first quote to discuss, it says, As might be expected, Mr. Roth, or rather his favorite narrator narrator and longtime alter ego Nathan Zuckerman, has a fine time ranting against the uh, piety binge he sees America indulging in at the close of the century, and he deftly satirizes the ecstasy of sanctimony practiced by campus commissars of political correctness. Coleman Silk's story, however, turns out to have resonance beyond these topical issues. As told or reimagined by Nathan Zuckerman, it is the Gatsby-esque story of a man who has seized the American principle of freedom and used it to shuck off the past to reinvent himself. It is the story of a black man who decided to pass himself off as white. So, 
uh, the, really the beginning is what I want to talk about. Isn't it odd how th- like th- this cancel culture political correctness discussion like hasn't really tamped down? In fact, it's kind of sh- shape shifted into new forms in our current society. So it's weirdly relevant this book. And I, I when I'm reading yeah. that review, which is obviously like over 20 years old, I kind of nodded and was like, oh yeah, okay. This book has like some very directly applicable. Obviously, also race in America is almost always directly applicable to something going on, but. Yeah, that's the other thing is, oh, yeah, this is about, uh, you know, kind of free speech issues, which are pretty big now, too, always. Mm-hmm. Free speech and and um, discussions of feminism. Yeah, all the big things, mm-hmm. all the big idea things that are still relevant to today, for sure. Did you find it to be a deft satire? Because I would say it is a blunt force satire. Yeah, deft is not a word that I would... Yes. <laughs> I, I think there is some deafness in, again, when Fania is put in and their relationship a bit, I didn't find the campus stuff, especially because of Delphine, I did not find that deft. <laughs> I found it lengthy, but I don't think it was deft. So to me, I would call that, that phrasing into question, just personally, but... Um, next quote here. Mr. Roth does a beautifully nuanced job by turns unnerving, hilarious, and sad of showing how Coleman lived a double life, a master of equivocation. Though there is the constant fear of exposure, not to mention shame of repudiating his family, there's also the exhilaration of keeping a secret in a, quote, grand and elaborate way. I do think Coleman is pretty well realized. And then uh, dun, 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 Zuckerman complication, like he is also just an imagination <laughs> of an author living in the woods. So mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> um, fair enough. But no, I think if you were just to accept the narrative on its face, yeah, Coleman's an interesting guy in, in his own story. He actually takes a backseat to other characters, which I think is kind of wise at times, especially for Fania's sake. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I like, not that I like Coleman necessarily, but I like how his character was was handled. The the nuanced is is a perfect word, I think, for the way that he was characterized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely is. And the final quote. This one's lengthy, but the um, the final quote here from this review. Let me actually, I might cut parts of this out, but it is, it's an interesting final quote. Um, though Fania's illiteracy feels ridiculously contrived, and though she is initially portrayed in the most patronizing of terms, Mr. Roth goes so far as to write of the, quote, irreversible futility that is her life, she gradually emerges as a plausible human being, complicated, conflicted, and even sympathetic in her defensive approach to life. Well, actually, I'll pause there. Any thoughts on that description of Fania? Uh, ridiculously contrived? I agree. Like, her... I, I understand that that her illiteracy like is important to her characterization because it's a it's not that she's actually illiterate it's that she's she chooses not to read and to rely only on like her other senses I suppose which mm-hmm. highlights her her connection to nature and, and yeah stuff the like nature that. connection is to me a really profound part of her whole being and that also yeah. plays into her kind of sexual connection with him too the thing that they sort of enjoy most about each other. The other thing I would say is I would copy paste this sentiment, uh, analysis, criticism, and just put it on Delphine to me. Mm-hmm. It's like, I actually mm-hmm. thought Fania now granted the the thing with Fania is that she's, um, I was going to say comically, that's definitely the wrong adverb. I, I have to say it out loud to then apologize, but she's like hyper, she's so abused. It's it's not, she doesn't get any break. The story never gives her a break. Roth never gives her a break. Like it's, Everything about her life is filtered through different cut types of abuse. 
And so maybe that construction is just a bit much. I, I could see that criticism yeah. of being like, did, yeah. did it really need, do we really need 10 things? Like, why can't it be two? You know, does it really mm-hmm. need to be so intensely drawn? But I, again, then thought that she got so much interesting nuance and twist and, and characterization. To me, this would just apply to Delphine. Like, that felt really flat to me. So, but, you know. So I, I responded. Uh, the actual final quote here. Um, For that matter, the human stain turns out to be peopled with as rich and ver- ver- variegated. Variegated? What yeah. does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> varied? <laughs> um, I think varied. <laughs> I was going to say, like, spread throughout me. I don't know. Um, as rich as American pastoral. While many of these characters start off as simple satiric types, Fawny's husband, the rage-filled Vietnam vet, Coleman's academic adversary, the snooty French structuralist, Mr. Roth gradually fills in their cartoonish outlines with painstakingly observed details, allowing them to talk and talk and talk their way into becoming people who are both recognizable individuals and embodiments of the age in which Coleman so precipitously falls from grace. It is an era, as Nathan describes it, in which fate too often feels accidental, personality can be reduced to gesture, and coherence and order are elusive, an era delineated in this ample novel with uncommon insight and perception. I I like the summary. I just... Uh, it breaks my heart to do it again, Amanda. I'm going to do it. Those characterizations are all called into question with the dun 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 Zuckerman complication. Mm. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. I do agree, though. It's like I, I enjoyed all those asides. I've already criticized the the French snooty French professor enough, and how that was done. But I do think that they're all given time on the page to breathe. I th- thought that writing was was interesting throughout. But you know, it's I just wish that hadn't happened at the end. What can you do? Um, and then the talk and talk part was very funny, I thought. I appreciated yeah, that. It, it's perfect, yeah. Because <laughs> that is kind of the that is the structural decision of this book is to let's let these people talk and think for, for long periods. Any thoughts mm-hmm. on those quotes? Um, I, I thought that, the, okay, so Mr. Roth gradually fills in their cartoonish outlines with painstakingly observed details. Mm-hmm. This snooty French structuralist, I'm like, she still felt kind of cartoony to me because... Big time, yeah. At the end there, she still is like... <clears throat> I don't know, it's, it, her actions and, and her thoughts and stuff, it was just too... And perhaps too it's <laughs> perhaps it's too, that the big revelation with her whole character's arc is she's basically a teenage girl who can't like yes. live up to her mom's expectations. So it's just, and I think that's part of it too. Is and we talked about this already in the analysis part, but it just it just kind of ends in a in a whimper with her, and it's just like, oh, that's as interesting as you could make this. Like that's the insight. Blah. It just yeah, it felt very flat and just kind of amateurish or something it just yeah it didn't generate interest to me and also the the whole email scandal and the letter scandal the plot wise it was just really not consequential and so that also doesn't help when it's like well why was this even here (laughs) it doesn't really matter and and even if it and even so if it didn't matter okay fair enough i don't need plot to be uh you know going cranking at all gears all the time but then like is it well written is it dynamic is it interesting does she add something meaningful it's like no she feels like a pretty weak and too obvious criticism of what he didn't like about academics when he wrote it (laughs) so it's like okay i mean it's a character is mouthpiece we already said all this but yeah i agree Mm -hmm. it's just anyway the rest of it i think worked at least you know pretty well and yeah, yeah i think um an insight or an uncommon novel with uncommon insight and perception like yeah i would do a sh- i would do a hesitant yeah but i do think a lot of that is true 
Yeah. So, yeah, um, that's my final quote from that book review. Any thoughts on those before we wrap up with the Hall of Fame? Nope. Okay, let's jump to the Lightly Literary Hall of Fame. We end every book club part two by inducting something from the work we read into our, our own personal literary Hall of Fame, which I've never kept track of. So it's really, it's up to you listeners to like even remember what the what we throw in. <laughs> I should have put these in like an Excel <laughs> doc at some point, but that's okay. We'll, we'll have the Hall of Fame just be out there in the cloud somewhere floating around. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what did you admire about the, the novel, Amanda? And what do you want to put into our Hall of Fame? Um, I put Roth's exploration of topics that are still sensitive today. So race, feminism, sexuality, and sensuality. And from, mm-hmm. from multiple, multiple perspectives, kind of. <laughs> yeah, to an extent, for sure. <clears throat> yeah. Even if a part of it gets a little too mouth, um, mouth PC, you know, maybe a little too direct at times, but a hundred percent agree. And it's, it's bold, right? This is why when people make jokes about, you know, writing the great American novel. I mean, part of it's not a joke. People have been trying to write these incredibly dense, complex, and twisty um, novels in America forever. And, you know, sometimes they work, sometimes it's mixed. I thought this one was pretty good. So I like it. Big issues, Amanda. Big issues only. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm going to put in something... I'm going to call it Roth's frustration because I think he writes... I think he writes rage and frustration in a way that's very subtle and has some great nuance to it. And so these characters who are really fed up or broken or maybe at their breaking point, which practically all of them are, except for Fania in an odd way. It's like she's almost been broken and has put herself back together. It's that idea about American, you know, freedom, exceptionalism, individualism applied to her, maybe. Mm -hmm. But like every other character is in some way on the on the verge of rage or is frustrated or broken. Um, Just repeat all the adjectives I already said. But um, so I'm going to put that idea in that. I just think he has that register pretty well honed and i it's it's the thing you kind of want high-minded so to speak literature to do which is take kind of quiet scenarios and then show the intensity of them and i think he does Mm -hmm. that with his characters pretty well like in in a pretty gripping way too so i'll put yeah i think i i like that the the two that come to mind of course are are silk and coleman silk and um less those two really stand out to me in that respect well and even to to then you know our hall of fame contains multitudes and and subtleties and everything but it's like he tried it with delphine too it just didn't work for me but it's it's like every character has is attempting something like that everyone but zuckerman amanda (laughs) so thanks for that phil broth you've cursed us you've cursed our podcast (laughs) i can't stop Uh, I do have to bring up one thing that I thought of earlier and never got a chance to mention, so I'm going way off script here. That does conclude our, our segments. Here's my final question, Amanda, and this is an analytical moment that, that must be must be taken seriously. In the middle of this novel, uh, in part one, I believe, there's a long conversation that Coleman overhears on campus about Bill Clinton and the sex scandal. And it's pretty vulgar yeah. and crass. And Coleman kind of sympathizes with these guys who are chatting in this way. They're all men. But it's, you know, it's pretty intense. And they certainly don't have the most flattering things to say about women. And it's basically like Bill Clinton should have should have had anal sex and it would have been a much purer thing in America's yada yada. It's Again, if you read it in the context of the novel, the things about gender there and sex and power, you know, it's interesting to analyze. But Amanda, mm-hmm. hold on now. Do you hear the air horns calling? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> we, we now know 
We now know yeah. that Zuckerman yeah. made up that entire conversation. It is a total fabrication of his mind. Go ahead and analyze that now, please, because at the time we had this pretty light bantery conversation about what it shows us about Coleman and his disgrace and his view of his own gender power and like position at the college and also set like it's worth analyzing through all those character lenses and conflicts and whatever. But okay, heads up. That was all made up by some author living in the woods within the context of the story. So mm-hmm. what does that say about Zuckerman then? I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like what how do you interpret this? What is the point? What's does it change your view of it? Like I don't know. Any thoughts? <clears throat> yeah, uh, the only thing I guess is Zuckerman uh, with with the lens of Zuckerman now that it is just meant to be symbolic. It's him trying mm-hmm. to relate Coleman Silk's a whole situation with his relationship with Fania okay. to and and the the overall idea of like sensuality in America and sexuality in America and control mm-hmm. and power in America. So that mm-hmm. I just look at it as well, he's just shoving the Coleman Silk narrative into the bigger picture of America just is like puritanical in a lot of ways, but sex is used as control. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So that's how I viewed it. Okay, uh, fair enough. And I'm not even going to put in too much of my own thoughts just because it's, you know, it's obviously vexed me deeply in this pod on this episode. <laughs> so <laughs> I can only now, you know, get this mortal coil, this book's coil off of me and shed it and be free. Um, yeah, fascinating stuff, but I don't know. Authors, you got to stop writing about authors. You just, you, please stop. Make it stop, man. Make it stop, please. <laughs> I don't want to look at a painting of a person painting, and I don't want to watch a movie about movie making, and I don't want to read books about authors. Just stop it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just please. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cut it out. Uh, it's exhausting. Anyway, um, any final thoughts on The Human Stain by Philip Roth slash Zuckerman? <laughs> no, I'm good. Okay, excellent. Well, we thank you as always for listening all the way through through that there's a zero percent chance anyone finished this bad boy but we appreciate it if you did (laughs) sincerely it's you know we're flattered we hope we added some fun and interesting insight into the book we do have other books coming up of course none of which will have frame narrators of narrators thank god i I hope not if any of these do then i'm gonna just you know burning them burning books (laughs) that's what causes me to burn books it's not it's not of moral principles it's of you know rhetorical frustration (laughs) it's of literary you know literary density or something i don't know that's why that's why i choose to burn anyway um do you want to Mm -hmm. tell them about the next three books coming up Yep, so next up we have Soccer and Sun and Shadow by Eduardo Galliano, and then we have A Good Family by A.H. Kim, and then finally we have The City in the City by China Myville. I think Miel? it's Mielville, but I'll check by the time Mielville. we get there. Mielville, sci-fi writer. That's my hard comeback from The Midnight Library, which we didn't like. The City in the City is going to be a dense and strange and really intense like sci-fi book. <laughs> so awesome. that's, my, that's me coming back being it. like, I'm not kowtowing to Goodreads anymore. Never again. I'm, doing my, <laughs> I'm going my own way. <laughs> I already know I really like this author and he's very intense and good and weird and I'm doing it. <laughs> I'm not, no more. <laughs> nice. uh, good time. 
times. Um, well, we hope, yeah, those are our next three books coming up. We hope, as always, you enjoyed the discussion and the conversation. We, again, are the Lightly Literary Podcast, and we have Instagram and Facebook accounts active, so follow us there. Give us a, I don't know, like, subscribe, whatever you can do on those platforms. And then also, we do post on just about every podcast platform, so if you can rate and review us five stars and a written review, help a ton. It's kind of how the podcast apps and stuff, like Spotify and iTunes, that's how they promote and kind of filter them out. So any reviews do help tremendously. Uh, We'll be back again with those books soon. Thanks as always. Until next time, we'll see you between the pages. 